you look at the market caps of any of the top five banks in Canada, many of them are in the top 10 banks in North America, period. Um, you can build big companies, multi-billion dollar companies, if you focus and you are the winner. But again, you need to be strategic because you probably need to invest in the winner of, there's not going to be like, in many cases, this is a winner take all type market environment. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. My guest today is Stephanie Chu, partner at Portage Ventures, a global FinTech-focused VC that traces its roots back to Canada. The firm focuses on FinTech companies and currently manage over $3 billion dollars in assets under management. In this episode, we discuss the fintech opportunity in Canada and why most fintech verticals in the country are winner take all. In light of a looming recession, what are some of the counter cyclical fintech themes Steph is investing in these days? Portage's take on crypto and why they remain very bullish on the category the future of fintech partnerships and why a lot of the growth from the industry will be driven through collaboration between fintechs and big tech and incumbent banks, and just a lot more. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Steph from Portage. Steph, welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast. Uh, delighted that you are joining us. Where, where are you calling in from? I'm in New York today. New York. All right. We might be... Uh, you know, sitting very close to each other in the city. But yeah, uh, we could have done this in person. <laughs> but we're doing it remotely. That, that's fine. I do most of the interviews remotely, um, the vast majority, but I've started doing some in person. Uh, you know, so next time we'll do that. For sure. Thanks for having me on. Please. Uh, uh, thanks for taking the time from your very busy schedule. Maybe tell us a bit about your, your background how you got into VC, because I, I know you've been uh, at it for, you know, at least over six, seven years, right? Yeah. So I was really one of the, I was the second full-time partner brought into Portage. I really joined at the beginning uh, of our journey as a fund in 2016. We're a reasonably new fund and platform. I'm happy to talk more about kind of our focus and what we do shortly. But in terms of my background, I kind of fell into VC, like many, many others do. Uh, right before this, I helped build a digital, I'm, I'm from Toronto originally, that's where I grew up. And my path to VC really came because I was interested in the kind of intersection of fintech, financial services and tech started my career really at a, a payment startup doing mobile text-based payments, um, operating in actually emerging markets, kind of East and, and South Africa at the time. I then like learned a lot of lessons about being at an emerging market startup, which really you're, I think we were too early and, and many times you're at the whim of uh, like, or, both regulators and uh, like a market environment that 
that is super unpredictable. Um, and that's really actually shaped and informed the way I think about investing in emerging markets even today. And then when, when that startup didn't work out, I got a quote unquote, went back to go get a real job, uh, worked mainly in financial services for PCG for a number of years, and then had the opportunity to become part of a founding team of a company that built basically a digital hybrid robo that really is now the core infrastructure for one of the big five banks in, in, in Canada. Um, and still, still today actually powers all of their interaction with retail wealth customers. Um, but at that, we did kind of two years of work on that. And then in 2016, I kind of had the opportunity to really reflect on whether or not I wanted to be and join a large organization, which was not, which was kind of not the, the way that it started with, uh, a group of kind of 20 of us. And so uh, I I knew I wanted to go back to tech. I knew I wanted to be in fintech and in financial services where I'd spent kind of the majority of time and where I'd built for better or for worse some some expertise. And so I ended up meeting with a lot of people um, Adam and Paul, who founded Portage, were one of many meetings that that I took at the time. And, and super fortuitous, they were building what now has become Portage. Um, at the time, like small mandate, single or th- three LPs in the fund, about $100 million of, of, of capital allocated. And we've really grown it over time and and the it was a little bit of a as mentioned i think um circuitous path into into vc and really based on a super focus on financial services and and fintech um that i ended up joining joining portage and 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 really the vision that we had from the very beginning was that we could build a really dedicated and vertical specific platform that, and it's the, still the vision that we have today, by the way, that's really driven by what we saw as a secular tailwind, not in, not only in fintech, but also with the ability to drive real value with portfolio companies by connecting them to a broader financial services ecosystem. And it's that was the vision then, and it's still really our vision now, six years later. Obviously, the market dynamics have changed. FinTech is no longer kind of an underinvested. Well, depending on who you ask, it's definitely not a, it, it's definitely a sector that's in the last five years received a lot of both funding and PR, a lot. It was very different, I would say, in 2012, 2014, even 2016. And, and if you look at like the dollar amounts invested in FinTech, a lot has changed in, in the past six years, but the genesis of the platform and what we were trying to build around specific expertise and around um, being able to connect to a broader financial services platform and ecosystem is kind of a lot of the same vision that we have today. So one of the things that I love about this podcast is that we get to hear from people 
uh, working and investing in different ecosystems of fintech around the world. We have, we have heard a lot about Canada recently, and I think you are the perfect person to tell us a little bit about fintech in Canada. You know, what are some of the advantages and, and disadvantages of, of the Canadian market and, and um, why uh, do you guys remain very excited about it? Because there seem to be some very good opportunities. So we're a global fund and we have been a global fund from the beginning. We obviously have strong Canadian roots because a few of us on the on the investment team are Canadian. And I think that actually gives us a really good vantage point to compare different kinds of geographies globally. And many of us have worked and lived in a bunch of different places. I certainly have been lucky enough in my career to have gotten to work in 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 five or six different countries at this point. Um And, and the Canadian ecosystem, I think, is really, is really interesting in fintech and financial services specifically because it very clearly has re like a really strong regulatory framework that for better or for worse has lent it a reputation of stability. So 2008, 2009 were the perfect examples of where with a global kind of GFC collapse, the Canadian banks that are well-regulated and have very strong balance sheets did, were not very impacted by what was a really global recession. They were obviously impacted in, 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 in other ways. It, it's, a, it's really hard to insulate yourself as a country from the global economy, but, but for the most part, I think the, that really sh shone a light on, There was a really clear spotlight on kind of the fiscal responsibility and strength of the Canadian banking system. I think the flip side of that is regulation has created what I would describe as ridiculous oligopolies that need to be challenged and really limit competition. And this is not different than, it's actually quite similar, I would say, to markets like Australia, If you look back 10 years to the UK, it, it was probably not dissimilar to that, although they really have come a long way in, in how the regulators have, have started to encourage innovation, specifically in fintech there. Um, but I would say it's really dominated by like, like a serious oligopoly of clear incumbent winners, specifically in the, in, in the banking sector. And I think that There's been a lot of noise and challenge of that in the last five to 10 years, um, specifically because clearly the customer experience and potential to innovate on the, on, on the ground level has really, has really suffered. And so it's, so like two other things that I would call out are like act, Canadians are everywhere. They're like our best expert is talent. They're everywhere in the US. But like we have amazing engineering schools, amazing technical talent. So there's a lot of second headquarters or large offices of, of, of the FANG companies that have been set up in Toronto, in Montreal, in other corridors like that to take advantage of excellent engineering and technical talent at what used to be a quote unquote discount. Um, and so like that makes it an environment that I think cr has, has created a lot of interesting 
founding teams in the last little while, not only focused just on Canada, although I do think there are, like, the Canadian financial services ecosystem is, is like, has massive profit pools, actually some of the largest in the world, because, again, it's an oligopoly, so the banks and insurance companies and wealth managers can all afford to charge really high fees because there's very limited competition. So the profit pools are actually really large. And so there is lots of room for potential innovation, just given what the market structure looks like and really great talented teams that can build not only Canada, but also you'll find a lot of Canadian teams are actually building for the US market as well. Because I was, I was just going to ask you that. Is, is that a requirement you think for a venture backable company to think U.S. from day zero? My personal opinion is no. And we've always had this thesis that there are markets, regional markets like Canada that are big enough that you can build multi-billion dollar businesses. If you look at the market caps of any of the top five banks in Canada, many of them are in the top 10 banks in North America, period. Um, you can build big companies, multi-billion dollar companies if you focus and you are the winner. But again, you need to be strategic because you probably need to invest in the winner of, there's not gonna be like, in many cases, this is a winner take all type market environment. And it's not a environment where you can afford to then have, unlike the US market when we invest, you can be one of five companies competing in a specific market. There are thousands of, of banks, of community banks out there take the banking market specifically, I think the dynamics of the population just make it a lot easier for there to be multiple winners in certain market constructs. If you're going to invest in a smaller market, you need to be in the winner. And Makes so sense. we're in a company called, so in, so we're like, we've taken a few swings in Canada and we're obviously pretty selective when we do invest in. So Nesto, which is a mortgage, uh, digital mortgage, both broker and lender, um, is, is another example of a company where we think the mortgage market is massive, but you'll notice that they do both. They do both. They, they own the entire stack um, of what they do. It's not just a point solution. They're both a lender and a broker. And then Coho, which is a, a, a digital bank, really it's the kind of the quote unquote time of, of, of Canada is another kind of Canadian focused, Canadian only investment that we've made I would say that we've looked at and would continue to invest in other markets along that thesis too. I think about Australia, which a lot of people I think would think is a small is too small of a market to consider venture investments. Like I think again, very similar market structure to to Canada. Time zone notwithstanding, there's a lot of challenges to investing in a market that you're not in a hundred percent. But like I actually think you can build billion dollar companies, and there are billion dollar market cap companies that will focus on markets like Australia, Canada, and even and even if you look at European markets, a lot of our thesis is for Clark, for example, which is a German insurance broker, like a lot of our thesis is, can you win in Germany? Like international expansion for a fintech is so hard because of the regulatory challenges and everything in the infrastructure stack is just different. So our, our thesis actually from day one has really been, you can compare globally and take lessons from global markets and from global companies, but really as a fintech, it's a really regional market more than anything yeah. else. Yeah, yeah. And let, let's switch gears a little bit. 
a lot of signs point to us heading towards a, a recession, right? Might be global, might be, you know, uh, US only, although that's extremely unlikely. Uh, but now, you know, in light of the environment where we're in, are there any specific verticals within the fintech space that maybe uh, get you a little bit more excited these days, uh, just given what's going on in the world? Yeah. Um, I mean, we're spending a lot of time thinking about what are some of the countercyclical theses. I mean, we're not the only ones. I'm sure there are lots of other fintech investors thinking about this too. I think the, like the obvious ones are anything where you collect deposits with Fed funds rate having gone up, you're now certainly in a position where you, you're able to have a better yield on any deposit-taking company. I think anything in the debt collection, debt repayment space, customers are both going to look for value, but also like where credit in many cases, people are going to pull back on credit availability because of a higher cost of capital, et cetera. So if you can figure out a real way to underwrite a population that is not going to have, that is going to A, require more credit and, and probably not have access to it, it's actually a very hard area to get right, to be honest, um, just given the market environment. And again, you, you have a lot of demand tailwinds, but a lot of supply headwinds in that. So I think like software that services that area, I think is going to be like still is countercyclical and interesting. I think if you look at where enterprise spend is going to continue to generate value over the next little while, I think cyber is not going away. Actually, there's been a super hardening in the reinsurance markets for basically every category in this funding environment. So we're spending time trying to see whether there's like, th that's an area that could be that there's various different angles that I'm that, that I think could be interesting there. And then finally, of course, there's like payments remains a, a core vertical of focus for us. And, and, and is not really as impacted by, well, depending on the type of payments. So we're looking at verticals that will not be as impacted. So typically B2B, B2B payments on, on that side of the house. How, how about crypto? I mean, crypto was supposed to be the hedge against inflation that's proven to be wrong uh, in most cases, especially against the US dollar. Um, we're going through a crypto winter, yet uh, there's still a lot of early stage builders focusing in the category. There's still millions of users. Um, how much attention are you paying to just the crypto space in general? Yeah, I'm super bullish on crypto long term. I think it's definitely like completely cyclical. It is not a hedge <laughs> as, as evidenced by market prices over the last little while. Um, but I'm really bullish on the intersection between fintech and crypto. It's a place that we spend a lot of time. I think if you are investing in fintech, you have to be investing in crypto. I think it could be completely disruptive to a lot of the sectors that I just described. I think you think about everything I just talked about, lending, like very clearly the, the DeFi 
the DeFi exuberance is now over, but I do think that there's really interesting examples of where you can be, you can offer and and create standardized and bring further liquidity to new asset classes. I think, I think in the payment space, it seems again pretty obvious that people in emerging markets are already using are already using USDC and stable coins as a method of holding savings and moving money around the world. Like whether or not you can make money as a business doing that, I think is a whole other question about how do you capture value. But I do think it seems obvious that it's going to totally, it could totally disrupt payments. You should be able to have a real time rail settlement that's cheap and quick and fast. I think on the, wealth management side, it's been shown like in the last two run-ups that this is this is a like asset of choice, a category that's been that's really captured the imagination of young investors. I think people want to have some affinity and narrative choice, which was really what we saw in the equities market around GameStop. And like, I think the ability to really part, like the ethos around collective participation and being able to own a piece of what you consume is something that is really uh, like at the forefront of why people want to invest in and own different kinds of like, and, and contribute to different kinds of projects in the Web3 ecosystem. I think I'm pretty bullish on on that coming back once the markets do come back. So long term, I think that there's a and then insurance where like ultimately I think the thesis is really financial services in general is super is super intermediated. Like that's where all the profit pools are. If you're a bank, you're getting paid to intermediate a specific kind of process, either the process of savings and lending and or payments. And all of these profit pools could potentially be disintermediated buy smart contracts it feels really obvious to me that you have to be paying attention the question is like in what time horizon does this happen is it right 10 years is it 20 years and and i think my thesis is it probably happens sooner than we think but these things take decades to play out over time i think we're probably closer to 10 years than 20 years i think some of my own like I think this is a debate that I have frequently with other investors, and there's 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 varying levels of 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 conviction around that. Yeah, and I think if you if you look around, it's already happening in some corners of the industry. Like one of my favorite recent interviews was Mike Cagney, founder of SoFi and now Figure, and I think the the most interesting learning of that was. They went out to pitch uh, a better financial product, uh, you know, essentially the blockchain network and the rails for banks. And, and banks told them, oh, we'd love to use this, but we want to be the 10th bank to use it. So they did it themselves to prove to the market that this can be disintermediated and, and it's working and, and they're growing. So. I'm, I'm gonna be paying a lot of attention. Do, do you have a do you have a crypto portfolio? I'm I'm just curious. We do. We've definitely done direct investments, uh, like out of the fund in 
in crypto, we also have a, like a side pocket vehicle where we can do like a few more experimental things, but we're, but it's just a different, you need a dedicated vehicle for it because it is a, just a different, um, some of these things are just a totally different risk profile, especially token investments and so forth out of our core fund. Again, we've done a lot of intersection, like we've done a couple investments like crypto custodians, um, decentralized asset managements, like a company called Haruko, which is a PMS for institutional investors to invest in crypto, a company called Conduit, which is a set of APIs that allow fintechs and financial services companies to access like crypto tools uh, and, and yield. Um, I, like I think those that squarely fits within our thesis of believing that this is going to be core infrastructure for the next generation of financial services. And I think we're, we are continuing like real, I'm still very excited about continuing to invest in this space, despite the recent kind of bad press and, and general like bearish sentiment of the market, because I think you, again, we're long-term investors. This has to be a 10 year time horizon. And I still have really strong conviction that there will be big companies built that are going to be started today in the coming couple of years as well so speaking of big companies i know one of the trends that you pay attention to is the uh, call it tech fin so it's big tech launching uh financial products becoming slowly fintechs um many of them are doing it through partnerships others are choosing to build in-house uh, how do you think that's going to play it out, play out over time? Because my guess is that, you know, Amazon or Google probably don't want to get a banking license, right? It's going to add a lot of headaches uh, and regulation. Yet they do want a piece of the fintech profit pools. Yeah, and I think my view on this is really that they're going to partner because the regulatory burden. They're already under, all of these tech companies are already under so much regulatory scrutiny as it is around competition, monopolies, data use, everything that we've been reading about in the last X years. So my guess is they're not going to want to invite more regulatory scrutiny by becoming, by buying and acquiring charters, by becoming a regulated insurance entity, by like, I just can't see that as a path forward. And maybe I'll be wrong with Amazon's entree, like into the healthcare space, but I can't, I really think they're going to partner. And the question is, are they going to partner with really big banks like Goldman? So Apple just announced another product today that they're partnered with, with Goldman. Like, I think the question will be like, are, is there going to be a set of fintechs that actually get to the scale necessary to really serve a Google or a, or a meta or a, an Amazon? I think that is still yet to be proven. I think to date they've really been served by large incumbent financial services providers. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, and I think we're also going to be seeing more partnerships between fintechs and, and large banks, uh, especially in, in other parts of the world. Uh, banks are just recognizing they can't really innovate internally too much. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a trend that we've seen play out in the last few years. It's also part of our thesis is like, it's not even that they can't innovate 
actually the fastest way for them to innovate is to just partner and and use best in class vendors, which by the way is what lots of other upstart and challengers do anyway. You there's no world in which you would try to build the equivalent of like even as an early stage and scrappy fintech, you're going to be built on top of lots, lots of other infrastructure. You're you're not going to try to build everything yourself. And I think that certainly has been a big mind shift as I as as I talk to our big kind of corporate financial services ecosystem, a number of which are our LP, our direct LPs. I think that's that's a very clear change. Is build it yourself really does not make sense, and I think most. Most incumbents would also, with with some clear exceptions, um, at the very, like at the very l- largest institutions, I would say, for the most part, I think most people have basically said that partnering is the most efficient way to go forward. Steph, before I, I let you go, one of my favorite topics to talk about with experienced investors is about board management because the reality is that you you've sat on boards for several years at this point you've you've probably seen the good the 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 bad and, and the ugly uh maybe uh, share some reflections about you know some of the best boards you've sat in what what do they have in common uh and maybe vice versa also yeah, it's interesting. I think lots of people have very different philosophies on boards. We are typically lead investors, so we typically do take board seats when we do invest, and definitely when we lead. Um, so, and I'll caveat that the the our typical entry is kind of seed. There may not even be a board at seed, uh, and then a where there usually is a board, and then b where there there almost always is a board at at, at that point. Um, but we're we're typically still pretty early in the life cycle of of a company. I think it's it's interesting when the company is doing well. The board is somewhat of a sound like board members are sounding boards for for CEOs. Like the philosophy is pretty. If, if something's going well, the like being a board member is actually super easy. It's it's a really great position to just push from behind. You're trying to be as helpful as you can, but the those companies typically don't don't require like are actually reasonably quote unquote easy to manage i think the hardest board situations are almost always when the board is not aligned um and that can be for many different reasons usually the part of it is the company is not doing well and there and there's disagreement about what direction it should take. And there's lots of different reasons why you might disagree. You know, like there's from like economic reasons because everyone has come in at very different terms, um, which like ultimately VCs are fiduciaries to their LPs. That's what they're, that's what we are all paid to do. And I think like you you want to be and are and like I think there's different philosophies about about what that means vis-a-vis your responsibility on a board. Um, but I would say, look, the 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 best functioning boards are typically super aligned, agree on direction and like general strategy at the company 
like, honestly, it's really tough when you are at a board table with like many different kinds of investors, each with very different, like if you have a strategic investor, for instance, on your board, they're going to have a very different perspective on how, on like a direction that you might go. They might, or they might not, but that's another example of where I think it can be sometimes tricky to get alignment across all sorts of different stakeholders. Fantastic. Well, Steph, th this has been a, a great conversation. Uh, certainly a lot left to do in, in fintech. There's still a huge uh, opportunity and, and uh, you know, I hope uh, we get to co-invest uh, soon. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, but thanks for stopping by. It means a lot. I'm sure the audience is going to learn a lot. So, uh, you know, uh, thanks again. Thanks, Miguel. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode with Steph Chu, partner at Portage. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly, truly means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off. Till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armazo.